Christ. This week's text, for me, was a challenge. It challenged me on many levels, and frankly, John Calvin's words to the preacher came to mind. And Calvin said that it would be better for the preacher to break his neck on the way into the pulpit than to preach a sermon he had not first preached to himself. So it is in that spirit I want to look at the word with you today, a word that is humbling, a word that is life-giving, and a word that is from our God for us and for our benefit. So please turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first seven verses in depth today, verses 5, 6, and 7, as we have spent a couple of sermons already on the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, Speak to us this morning through your spirit. Be with the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart so that we would hear from you and that you would be glorified. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a little bit of recap. Those first four verses that we've considered in some detail before tell us a few things that I want to remind you of this morning. First of which is that this is a letter that is written to the Christian church. It is a, a letter written to a struggling Christian church, and we know this because of the heresy of docetism that was coming into their midst. This idea that God was somehow in the incarnation when Jesus came, that God was somehow in Jesus, but he wasn't a real guy, he wasn't real human. He was not, as our confession says, very God and very man in one Christ. So already John is addressing this issue, and he does so very succinctly by assuring us of the objective truth and the reality of Jesus in these first four verses. He also points out that this proclamation, this proclamation of Christ himself and the apostles was for joy that ultimately the Christian life is for us to be in fellowship with God and with one another in a fellowship of joy. 
We can have all kinds of false teaching in the church. We can have all kinds of struggles within and without. But God gives us, through Christ, joy. And today, we're going to learn something else about Jesus. I've thought about how to frame this question because it's very simple. How does John begin the book here with this sort of thesis statement in verse 5? He begins by simply saying that this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. A very simple idea. It started me thinking about what is necessary to know God. Do we start with ourselves contemplating what it is to be human or do we start by looking at God? Throughout the scriptures, that question is answered for us. And John answers it here. He starts with the reality and the revelation of Jesus Christ and then moves to us and how we should live. So I suggest that John is making a point here this morning that we start with Christ, we start with God in our inquiry about how we live, what we should do. John simply says, God is light. I would suggest to you this morning that if we started from that perspective, much of the trouble in our world today would be gone. If we started looking at life and everything in it on this plane of existence from God's perspective, starting from God's point of view, then we would have a different view of the world and how we should live in it. We start with Jesus. John Calvin says this to us this morning about where we should start with our knowledge. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin says this, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced and convicted of our own right unrighteousness and foulness, folly, and impurity. The Lord is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured, because all of us are inclined by na nature to hypocrisy. As long as we do not look beyond the earthly realm, we're content, quite content, he says, with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. For us this morning, this might seem like an obvious point, but I promise you that all of the various aberrations of Christianity that we find today exist in large part because there is a beginning with man, with humanity, rather than a beginning with God. Here at Christ Church Ann Arbor this morning, I'm sure that there are not many that are influenced by the health, wealth, gospel that sees God and Christ as some sort of genie or cosmic Santa Claus to whom we petition for our gifts, uh, that we desire gifts and we desire health, wealth, and all of the things that come with that. But I have a feeling there are many of us here that are looking for an experience, an experience of God. Some of us may even find that we live our lives from one spiritual high to another. 
perhaps we're even prone to think there's something wrong with the church. Maybe it's the liturgy. There's too much of it or too little of it. Maybe the preaching is too much about the kingdom of God and not about me, how awesome I am. Maybe some of us feel like we need to get back to the ancient church. There are many who have left our midst in the Reformed Presbyterian circles in the last decade, searching for an authentic, original Christianity. And many have turned to Catholicism and to East, Eastern Orthodoxy. I want to suggest, look at Acts 2. Christianity at that point is very simple. Christianity is a house church movement growing out of Judaism. Consider God's perspective on your worship, on your life. Let's look to him. Let's establish and continue that relationship with him and pursue God and let him tell us what we need. That's the first thing. The Apostle John begins with God and the nature of God this morning because he is altogether lovely and glorious. If we are ever to understand ourselves this morning, we must begin with him. And after reminding us of the glorious message of Christ this morning, John turns to this simple phrase, God is light. If you had to choose one or two words to describe God this morning, what would it be? God is love. By chapter 4 of this epistle, John is going to use that exact phrase. God is love. But that's not where John begins. God is glorious. He is good. God is certainly good. When I was a young person, I learned to pray at dinner. God is good. God is great. We thank him for our food. Amen. And certainly that's a good prayer for a young person that emphasizes the character of God as being good, great. Perhaps we would begin like the hymn writer Robert Grant if we were to describe God. In the first verse of his hymn, he says, Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing his power and his love, our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. What an apt description of our God this morning. But that's not where John begins. John does not begin this revelatory epistle by telling us that God is love or glorious. He simply begins with the statement, God is light. And that's the first real point this morning. Compared to the lofty language of the hymns, the statement is so simple. We're almost prone to gloss over it in a quick reading of the scripture. But it has a couple of very important nuances for us to understand. First of all, it points to the moral purity and the moral character of our God. It encompasses his righteousness, goodness, justice, and holiness. But there's more to it than simply God's moral purity and his righteousness. Here are a few verses to help us understand this expression that we find throughout the Bible. 
In Isaiah 9-2, we read a prophecy about Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In John 8-12, Jesus declares in one of the great I am statements from John, he declares, I am the light of the world. And later in that same chapter, Jesus says, I have come into the darkness of the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus says something about his character, but he also says something of his ministry. This metaphor of light tells us that Jesus comes and the darkness disappears. He comes to expose the darkness in our world, and he comes to rescue us and bring us to this marvelous light. He entered the darkness to save his people. The one who came to expose darkness was light itself. The character and message of Christ is one that does not abide darkness. He exposes it as the light of the world. He is the perfect one, the perfect God-man in holiness, righteousness, and truth. There is no variation or shadow cast by turning as he proceeds from the Father of lights. James chapter 1. Notice also that John is not simply content to say that God is light. He says, in him is no darkness at all. John is not being redundant in this parallelism. But in the Greek text, we have a very strong double negative. It's as if we should understand it as God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no, not any. John does not debate the text, nor is he offering a defense of his statement. He simply says, this is the message we heard and proclaim to you. This stands over and against the many voices in our culture today that would seem to cast a shadow over God's good name and character. While our society's morals may be shifting, God's light and truth are the same. There are no gray areas. There are no fluid morals here. There is only light and darkness, good and evil, a wide road, a narrow road, just, unjust, heaven and hell. Our culture has trouble this morning seeing this binary understanding of the world. We need John's correction. In the darkness, there may be dozens, even over a hundred genders. God's word says there is male and female. God's word declares that marriage is between a man and a woman. That life is a gift, not something to be thrown back into the face of its creator. In death camps, be they be for the unborn or the sick and infirm. There is light, and God's light exposes the darkness. If we start with God and his character, we will not fall into these traps of the world and compromising. Another way we hear of others slight the character of God is in the events of the world that are catastrophic. And these are legitimate questions which believers and unbelievers alike ask. 
How could God allow this tornado, earthquake, tsunami? Where was God when my cancer diagnosis came down, when my child was sick and died? I had a conversation recently with a former teacher from my undergraduate years. She had grown up in a Christian household. Her grandfather had even been a very well-known missionary in Southeast Asia. But she curses God. She doesn't believe anymore. And it's primarily over this question of how could a good God let all this stuff happen in our world. I'm sure we've all asked questions like that at some time. I want to suggest a couple of things. These are not easy questions to answer. But when we take our eyes off of the scripture, that's when we start to run into trouble because the God of the scripture reveals his loving, caring character to us. And when we start to see things from our perspective rather than his is where we run into trouble. You see, God's word reminds us that we, not God, brought sin into the world. He is not the author of sin and death. We are. John is not debating. He's simply declaring a message about Jesus, the one who brings eternal life, the light of the world. As John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel about Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness could not overcome the light of Christ. Even after three days in the ground, the light emerged. Those who walk in darkness this morning may not see this, but we who are his have the confidence that the hardship, that the suffering, that the pain, that death itself has a purpose in this life, and God is using it for his good purpose. If you need a reminder, read Romans chapter 8. Read your Bibles. Look at the history of redemption. In Genesis 3.15, we have the promise right after the fall that God is going to do something through the seed of the woman. He will crush the head of the serpent. And look at God's patience his love throughout the Old Testament as his people consistently disobey. What does God do? He brings in nations to discipline them because he loves them. He brings hardship because of his love. And ultimately God redeems over and over and over again. That's why Jesus could say, how many times you forgive your neighbor? Not seven times, but seven times seventy. Because God forgives. Look at the history of what he has done in Christ. God forgives. The state of the world is as it is today, not because God doesn't care, but because we, his creatures, are prone to sin. And we made it this way. I have a weakness for some classic rock. And before it was popular... I was a huge fan of the group Queen. I often find great insight into fallen humanity from 
the lyrics penned by the lead singer, Freddie Mercury. One of their lesser-known songs talks about the suffering in the world, particularly those children who he was focusing on starving in Africa. While this song may not be 100% theologically accurate, Freddie Mercury knew who to blame for the state of the world. I only wish that our atheist friends could be so honest. These are his lyrics. Just look at all those hungry mouths we have to feed. Take a look at all the suffering we breed. So many lonely faces scattered all around searching for what they need. Is this the world we created? We did it. Is this the world we invaded against the law? So it seems in the end, is this what we're all living for today? The world that we created. You know that every day a helpless child is born who needs some loving care inside a happy home. Somewhere a wealthy man is sitting on his throne waiting for world to go by. Is this the world we created? We made it on our own. Is this the world we devastated? Right to the bone. If there's a God in the sky looking down, what can he think of what we've done to the world that he created? Who's responsible? We're good Presbyterians, right? We believe in the sovereignty of God and his providence. Yes, God sovereignly governs the universe and the world and all of his creatures' actions. We believe that. The Bible affirms that. But the Bible also tells us in places like Roman 1, and I'm going to paraphrase this morning, is that if you make your bed, you have to lie in it. God gives people over to a depraved, debased mind to do whatever that mind desires. Consider what God did. The promise of Genesis 3.15. Consider what the redemption that he brought looks like. That he sent one born of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. I know I say that nearly every sermon, but that is the promise. Right after we as humanity blew it, God is there with a promise for good. As we look at our world, we must be reminded of the great hope in Christ, the light of the world. If we need some hope this morning about where the world is going, look at the final two chapters of your Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no darkness. Jesus is the light, John says. The glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, speaking of the celestial city. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. King Jesus, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, and the light of the new heavens and the new earth is making all things right, and through his cross has finished the work of redemption. We are simply awaiting that consummation. We all experience the brokenness and darkness of our present world. But hold on, Christian. Hold on a little longer. 
Christ is making all things right. Point one was that our spiritual inquiry begins with God. The second point is that God is light. And our third and final point is that as Christians, all of us who are in Christ will walk in the light. Verse 6 is the first of three claims that one might make about their life. And God willing, we will look at the other two claims the next time I have the privilege to stand before you. Let's look at this first claim together. In verses 6 and 7, we read, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. This is the first of several tests of faith that we will find in this epistle of John. Normally, I will be one that will want to emphasize that we look to Christ and not ourselves for our assurance of salvation. However, there are those moments in Scripture where we need to take spiritual inventory of our souls. And this is one of those places. John is encouraging to test us to test our confession so that we might be assured of our salvation and that some might be awakened. Notice in verse 6 that if we claim deep, intimate fellowship with God and are walking in darkness, we are deceived. We're liars, is what the text says. It means a couple of things this morning. First, we're not doing that which God has called us to. We talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. The sins of omission are our neglect of the things that God has called us to. The Bible gives us some specifics, talking about those in the first century who were the weakest and the most in need, widows and orphans, caring for them. It's taking the gospel to the world. It's loving your neighbor. It's caring for your brothers and sisters. That's walking in the light. That's one half of it. The other half is that we are called as Christians to leave our life of sin behind. Christ expects obedience. Christ expects those who are his to walk in the light and not practice the deeds of darkness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we are the light of the world. How seriously did Christ take obedience? In John 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's so many countless warnings in Scripture that I, I'm afraid, like me, frankly, for years, we gloss over. It's another list of sins, things that, eh, I'm in Christ, I don't have to worry about. Passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, nor none will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And a reminder from Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These passages are not written to the world. Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Hebrews, these passages are written to the church because these kinds of activities were taking place in the body of Christ. These letters were written to warn those in the church that those who practice these sins would not inherit eternal life with Christ. you're in Christ this morning, your life will not be characterized by walking in sin. This is a difficult teaching, and we need to hear it. We need to receive the right medicine for the disease. The reason that I think so many Christians fall away or fall into habitual and grievous sin might just be that there actually isn't any faith present. You see, beloved, claiming to know God is not the same thing as knowing him. Being born again is being brought into the light, being changed, and having a new set of desires. It is walking in the light. It's a substantive change brought about by the Holy Spirit. Over and over, the New Testament warns us. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Paul reminds us that we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. And Jesus even tells us that many who will call on him, who have claimed to have done great works in his name, in that final day he will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. The trajectory of our life of faith is one of holiness and walking in the light. There is great good news this morning. Notice in verse 6, the verb walking. Present, active, subjunctive tense. This is meaning that it's not someone who sins that's walking in darkness. It is one who continually walks, who habitually, present tense, is walking in sin. That's the first bit of good news, is that we can be forgiven. Walking in the light is actually walking in repentance. Otherwise, a few verses later in the text, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the hope of the good news. It's not about Christian perfection. Walking in the light is habitually seeking Christ, seeking to glorify him, seeking to him, or as, as our confession says, 
It is enjoying Him and glorifying Him through all of our life. I say this to encourage you and offer hope of assurance. Listen to this from the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. He put it this way. As Christians, we are as truly in the light, we are as heartily in the light, we are as sincerely in the light, as honestly in the light, though we cannot be there in the same degree as God. I cannot dwell in the sun. It is too bright a place for my residence. But I can walk in the light of the sun, though I cannot dwell in it. And so God is the light. He is himself the sun, and I can walk in the light as he is in the light, though I cannot attain the same degree of perfection and excellence and purity and truth in which the Lord himself resides. So what are we to do? The gospel. Christ offers us himself promises eternal life, cleansing from all unrighteousness and justification before God. There's also another part of our salvation, our sanctification. That is our growth in holiness. The Westminster Confession says it this way, that sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Notice it's God's work, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Growing in grace this morning is not optional. It is an essential part of our salvation that will someday be complete because he who began a good work in you will complete it. We sin every day, but we have a Christ, a great high priest who forgives sin. The Puritans used to say it this way. We need to be mortifying sin. And I used to think, okay, that's me, you know, slogging it out, doing some sort of duel with the devil. Mortifying sin is making use of the means of grace. It's sitting under the teaching of the word. It's reading the scriptures and letting it penetrate deeply into your heart and into your mind and into your soul. It is taking part in the sacrament. It is community fellowship with one another in the church. It is desiring Christ above all things as that pearl of great price, that great treasure. That is what killing your sin looks like. John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or else it will be killing you. Pray, read, fellowship. These are the means of killing sin. If you're worried this morning about your personal lack of holiness, or your spiritual pilgrimage looks like a roller coaster at best, I have a few questions for you. Do you desire Christ this morning? Do you desire to be pleasing to him? Do you mourn over your sin? Do you desire to walk in the light as he is in the light? Do you see some little sprigs of green blossoming in your life? Do you see the beginnings even of fruit in your life? It may be small, but is it there? If you 
grieve over your sin and can see any fruit in your life at all. It is the work of the Spirit. Those who are at enmity with Christ do not mourn over their sins or confess them to him. A life of faith is a life of repentance. It's a life of turning to Christ daily and walking in the light, committing to follow him and knowing that when we fail, we have a good Savior. Christ reminds us through the Apostle John in verse 7 that if we walk in the light, we have two things, fellowship with one another and forgiveness of our sins because the blood of Christ cleanses us of all unrighteousness. The gospel is not complicated this morning. If you want Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, his arms are open wide to receive you. All you must do is call on his name confess your sins and turn to him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be enabled to walk in the light, to grow in grace, and you will have the assurance that you are forgiven, that you are a child of God, and that you will see him someday face to face. So Christian, remember God is light. There is no darkness in him. Go forward in the life of faith, in the light, enjoying your fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. And remember that if you are in Christ, his blood cleanses you of all sin and unrighteousness. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Father, it is a hard word. We are incapable of walking in the light by ourselves. We so desire to. So often we take one of two roads of being either passive, thinking let go and just let you do the work in our sanctification. And other times we rest in you. As the Bible speaks of rest, that we trust in you for all things that we have the confidence and know that you will bring your good purposes to pass in our life. Impress that truth on our hearts. Let us be your children going forth from this place as the light of the world, as the light to Ann Arbor and our surrounding communities. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Savior, precious Redeemer. And